This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So, the historic election. Now, I don't know which country you live in, uh, but uh, if you live in the United States, it was sort of hard to uh, keep your mind on something else other than the election that took place this week. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, happen to, we tend to be a conservative body here. And so as a result, there was probably a little more rejoicing this week than booing. Uh, but that's not what this message is about. I know that it would be really fun to have a commentary on the uh, election and to discuss it and to vent or to process but that's not what we're doing, and uh, it's, it is a perfect title, though. I mean, I cannot think of a better title uh, for the end of this week than the historic election. It really fits the message, too, and it has nothing to do with Donald Trump becoming the president of the United States. Uh, a study in Romans chapter 9, uh, arguably uh, one of the most challenging uh, chapters in the Bible to deal with, and it has created a great rift in the body of Christ over the years, uh, whereas people literally on the issues of Romans chapter 9 will consider someone to be uh, a heretic if they do not come to certain viewpoints on it. So it's a delicate one. And that's why I don't know why I have such a big smile as I approach this topic. I mean, do I really know what I'm getting myself into? Uh, I gave a message on Romans chapter 9 well, it was a few years ago. I don't know how. It was a while ago. And the recording didn't take. And so I had all this conspiracy theorists that were out there thinking that I was, you know, I preached to my body and then hid it. And I didn't want anyone to know my secret beliefs on Romans chapter 9. Uh, so uh, hopefully this one records properly. Uh, I don't have any hidden beliefs on it. Uh, it's very simple. It's about Jesus. Uh, so a study in Romans chapter 9. To get here, this is, this is a very difficult chapter because to understand and interpret it, you have to understand what's going on in the book of Romans up to that point. It's a very, very important contextually driven passage. You know, you can lift a scripture out and be accurate even just in reading. It's like, yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Boom. You could take that one out. It still stands. Does that make sense? There's certain scriptures that don't. You have to understand the context to properly handle them. And so I would encourage all of us, even with John 3.16, to understand the context. However, certain scriptures lift better than others. You can stick them on your refrigerator and actually come to a proper conclusion. Romans chapter 9 is a little more challenging, which is why it's difficult to teach, because you don't have enough time in a Sunday service to really lay a proper foundation and give the tools that are necessary to understand it. So... I'm going to try and beat the rules on this and actually go through an entire chapter of the Bible and give the tools necessary without going in-depth into the teaching, but to give you at least a cursory understanding of how to handle it. So that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. 
very awkward uh, scripture there. I mean, poor Esau. Don't you just feel for the guy? It's like uh, God has this election and he's choosing Jacob. It's like, uh, what's wrong with Esau? I mean, the guy's hairy all over. I mean, doesn't that give him some bonus points? Uh, what are you against, redheads? I think he was redhead too. I mean, so that could be, I mean, some prejudice here. Uh, but there's a statement that takes place here that for many of us, we just grapple with it. Some of us just set it off to the side and go, okay, and we move on. But some of us trip all over it, and we just land flat on our face in this issue, and we don't quite know what to do with it. Okay, so this is Romans 9, classic stuff right there. <clears throat> some awkward words to ponder. Let's just get them out on the table. I'm not going to hide them. I'm not going to beat around bushes. We'll just get them out. Election, predestination. Boy, if there's just two words, you just want to sort of skip over and act like they, I didn't see that. Did you see it? No, we, we neither of us saw it. Let's keep moving. <laughs> So election, we, we just had an election in this country, so it's fairly you know, clear for many of us, even that have never heard of an election, it's like, well, what, what's an election? Well, there's a choice that's being made. It's an election is a choice. It's a choice made. And so in this case, it's God has chosen. So it's God's choice. That's God's election. Predestination, ooh, ah, wow, that's a tough one. God has pre-decided. So he pre-decided, I want that candidate to win. Whoa, can he do that? That sounds like a rigged election. Uh, Avi the other day asked me, so what's a rig, what does rigged mean? Uh, and, you know, it sounds sort of like a rigged election, doesn't it? Does God actually elect? Does he really predestine? I mean, come on, that, he wouldn't actually do that. So in Romans 11, we, we hear a lot about election. It's just Romans 11 just sort of gets out of control. Uh, you know, you thought Romans 9 was bad, and then Paul just is like, sets off any bounds, any restraint he has, and just starts talking about election in Romans 11. We're like, whoa, settle down, buddy. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Does that sound like it says the same thing twice? What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So let's go back in time. And I know even that is a little confusing, right? Let's go back in time. Who did God choose? Out of all the people of this earth, who did God choose? Who did he elect? You could say, well, it was Israel, the people of Israel. He chose Abraham, remember that? And he said, Abraham, hey, you. He chose them, right? And then out of Abraham... He chose a people, didn't he? However, what you begin to see in Romans 9 is God saying, just because they're of Abraham doesn't mean they're the ones I chose. I chose one out of Abraham, but you need to get your facts straight. I chose the seed of Abraham. Who is that seed? His name is Jesus Christ. The true elect one, the true chosen one, is a one named Jesus Christ. And so as a result, as we begin to go through these things, you need a tool a tool that helps you understand how election truly functions, and that is that God has decided how he's going to save. God has decided how he's going to reveal himself, and it is in and through a very specific one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Capital E and small e. That small e needs to be a small e. That's still a capital E. It's just a smaller capital E. That needs to be a small e to, for you to truly understand here. We have a capital E, and we could call it elect. And then we have a little small e, the elect, okay? Now, if you study scripture, you're going to find out that those that believe in Jesus are the elect. However, that's not necessarily what we're talking about today. We're talking about a big E. 
I want to introduce you to the elect, capital E. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the chosen one. He's the one that God elected before the foundations of the earth to do the work. He is the one who can carry the weight. Now, let me give you an illustration of how this works. If I were to say, uh, who is the righteous? And then you would say, that's me. You know, that would sound like you're boasting a little, wouldn't it? However, you'd be right and yet dangerously close to being wrong. And what I mean by that is you're right in the sense that when you believe in Jesus, his righteousness becomes yours and you share in his righteousness and therefore you're known as the righteous. However, in and of yourself, you are not the righteous. He is, capital R, righteous. Who is holy? Well, you could say, I'm one of the holy ones. Yeah, that's because you believed in Jesus and now his holiness covers you, right? He is, capital H, holy. You follow me? So when it comes to the elect, the chosen of God, the choice of God, what has he selected? He has primarily selected his son. That's who he chose. He said, I choose Jesus. And as a result, how we relate to that choice is everything to us. God has elected or pre-chosen what we can call the second man. Now, that's just a language in Scripture that's, for those of you that have been trained at Ellerslie, you understand firsts and seconds. Adam is considered the first, and I know it sounds strange because there's 77 generations in between, but Jesus is considered the second. So he's called the last Adam. He's called the second man. I know it seems like our mathematics are a little off. However, through Adam, when Adam sinned, all that were in Adam, and you have to understand genetics and reproduction to fully understand this, but all that were in Adam shared in his behavior. And so that first one failed, and as a result, any that were born of Adam, which includes all of this in this room, actually share in his condemnation, his responsibility, his judgment. And yet, there comes a second man, and that second man is chosen of God. And he is God. He is Jesus. And when he went to work and when he did what he did, anyone who believes in him leaves Adam and enters Jesus, forsakes the first man, puts off the old man, and puts on a new man, Jesus. And as a result, the one who is chosen, we share in that choice. And now we are chosen in Christ. So salvation, this is the... the, uh, the the election, by the way, the choice, the, the predetermined decision. Salvation is not in the first man. It's not in the body of death. It is not in the first man. God has made it clear way, way, way back. Salvation is only in the second man, which is called the body of Christ. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's, that's how it works. In Adam, all die. It's a decision that was made long before you came to this earth. It's a decision. It's made ahead of time. In Adam, all will die. It's in the second. God has chosen that the second will actually bring life. I amness. So you need to separate the ness from it. Uh, I amness. I am is who God is. That's his proper name. My, my name is Eric. God's name, in a strange sense, is I am that I am. I know, it's a strange way to describe God. And so the way we describe it, since we're not, you can't say I am because you're not. So you say he is. And that's how typically it is expressed even in scripture. He is. But what that means is he always was, 
He is today and always will be the same. So when you get to know God and you become familiar with God, you can know that he'll never alter from that. And that's how faith works. Faith is built upon the I amness of God, the fact that he never changes, he never alters. And that becomes important in this discussion as well. Because when you begin to realize that God has made a choice, he will not veer from that choice. He's going to keep his choice. He is. And so his ways are always the same all throughout Scripture. And you're going to notice everything I'm talking about today is just the way it's always worked throughout all of Scripture. Every story says the same thing. It comes to the same conclusion. So the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here's our word that is typically translated as predestined or predestination. And it's just the word predestination is, is an awkward concept. And for any of you that have ever spent any mental energy on it, it's just the way you handle that, that word can actually greatly infect your faith. Because it's like, well, if I'm predestined to be an idiot, I guess I can't change that. And as a result, you have a tendency to be passive in your life because, oh, well, God's already decreed and decided what I'm going to be and what I'm going to do, so I don't need to do it. He'll just cause me to do it. And it leads to a certain level of imbecilic living. And that is the reason this is a dangerous topic to deal with is because you have to graze close to the understanding of how God controls and how God decides and how he is all-powerful and almighty and yet, how does he deal with the fact that we are here with an individual responsibility? So how does that all balance? But this is called the predecision. The prodigio is the predecision, the predetermination, the eternally established inner wiring of the will, that which is set and hardened long ago. You see, the prodigio of God is already set. He's predetermined certain things. And he is locked into that. He is I am. So he sets it in course, in motion, and then he is long since hardened into his position to the point where you can build your life around what he has set because he will never alter it. He's not going to be capricious and just say, you know what, I made some decisions thousands of years ago. I'm throwing all that out. No, he still stands by. You know, the, the enemy has hardened into position. And in a sense, he's also going to be the same forever and always. He can't change. He is hardened into position. It's the old dog, new tricks principle. You see, after a certain period of time, clay becomes hard. And that's the idea behind prarizzo. You have a malleable season, the will is set, and then boom, it's locked in. And that's the way it's locked in forever. And so something is already locked in. Something is already hardened into position. We need to know what that thing is that hardened into position. I'm going to give you a list of things that are hardened into position. They will never alter. You can build your understanding of your Christian faith around it. The first man is condemned. Read the New Testament. You'll see it all throughout. The entire Old Testament exemplifies it. It shows it. All it is is a schoolmaster which is leading us to understand this first man can't save you. You need a second. You need a savior. It's the whole Old Testament. The whole New Testament unlocks it. The second man is salvation. His name is Jesus. The first man is rejected. The second man is elected. The first man is dirty, soiled, and sinful. The second man is without sin, without spot, and perfectly righteous. You're going to notice that this pattern is the same throughout all of Scripture. It's the second man in which there is no sin. The first man is loaded with it. The second man is without spot. If you want to be without spot, you can't be in the first man. Let's just get it straight. This has already been predetermined. You can't set your first life before God in the old state and say, God, will this stand before you? 
Ishmael was born first. He was symbolic of the first man. And Abraham sent him before God and said, couldn't Ishmael be the promised seed? Couldn't he be the one that, you know, the, the sons are as the sand of the seashore and so on? No, he cannot stand before me. See, he's a first. And firsts are rejected, not because they're bad dudes in and of themselves. It's because of how God has wired things. He says, no, I've chosen the second. And all throughout scripture, he reveals his choice, but it's to lead us to Jesus. It's not to lead us to build an anti-Esau campaign and say, I hate that guy. We remember that guy? God hates him. I hate him. I hate Esau. Hey, Esau, Esau goes down. That has nothing to do with it. It's the fact that Esau is a first. He's the firstborn son of Isaac. The secondborn son, his name is Jacob. And God is saying, I have pre-decreed. I've made my election. I choose the second. That's what he's saying. I choose the second. I love the second. Who is the second? Do you know who the second is? You see, the second is Jesus Christ. That's how God has determined it. The clay is hardened. God has chosen the second. The second one is perfectly righteous. The first man is unlike God. The second man is the son of God. The first man is eternally cut off from the sacred holy presence. The second man brought, brought us near under the throne of grace. The first man is earthy, bearing the image of the earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven, bearing the image of God. The first man is the fool. The second man is wisdom. The first man is under wrath. The second man is justified before the law. The first man is self-effort. The second man is God-effort. The difference between law and grace. The first cannot save. Your own efforts to be righteous will be determined. It already has. The clay is already hardened. It cannot satisfy God. You just don't know that. So we'll give you the law. We'll train you a little by it now. Have you learned anything? What did you learn? I can't do it. I can't please God. All right, you're getting there. What does please God? His own sacrifice, his life. That's the only thing that can satisfy God is, is perfect righteousness that comes from above. That's right. That's right. You're getting it. The second man is God effort. The first man is Ishmael. The second man is Isaac. First man is Esau. The second man is Jacob, also known as Israel. So the second is Israel. The first man is King Saul. Remember the first king of Israel? The second man is King David, the second king of Israel. Which one is a man after God's own heart? You see, he rejects the first and yet chooses the second. He just sounds so arbitrary, doesn't he? Why is he always choosing the second? He's showing you that his choice is already made. He has chosen Jesus. He has chosen something other than Adam. In Adam, you cannot live, but you need a second. And that second is the one I've chosen. The first man is under law. The second man is under grace. The first man is Adam. The second man is Jesus. So the praorizo, that's the predetermination, the hardening of the clay. God has pre-chosen the second man. Boom, it's done. God made this clear. All throughout the Bible, you cannot save yourself. There is one that will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. He will be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. That is the one I have chosen. That is the one I will put the government upon his shoulders. I have elected him for your salvation. That is the only way a man can be saved. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. You know, this is actually all throughout Scripture, by the way. This is the concept of Scripture. This is the wiring of it. The infrastructure of Scripture points to the second. 
by which the will by by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all by God's prarizo. So if you read that without you know a very clear translation, you say by God's predetermination or by God's predestination. Just the word predestined just gives some people the eebie-jeebies and some people get all excited about it. It's just sort of a funny word like uh, Holy Ghost. You know, if you say it that way, then somebody's like, oh, it's just so weird to say it, ghost. And how about this one? Speaking in tongues. You know, some people are like, praise God, I have one coming right now. And then other people are like, oh, no, I'm running. And so we have different aspects, different things in Scripture because of our background that trigger responses, mental and emotional responses to us. Predestination is definitely one that triggers something usually. Now, some of you are like, you know, like I've never even heard the word before. Well, praise God for, for that at a certain level because for many of us, this has been a battleground and we've tried to wrestle through fog banks. And I mean, it's just been challenging to know how to see straight. By God's praarizo, it is not in Adam, it is not in Ishmael, it is not in Esau, it is not in the law, it is not in the flesh. Saul will not be the savior of this country. And as a result, when Goliath stands before it, who melts down? Uh-huh. The first will always fail, but who steps up? The second. The second is the deliverer. All throughout Scripture, you will see this pattern. This is what is hardened into place. This is what is established. And so when we get to Romans 9, you're going to see it. This is exactly what Paul is reasoning from. He's saying, don't you recognize it's the second, the elect, the elect, we get all into small e elect. And we're like, did I, did I, am I the chosen or are they, are they not the chosen? Instead of recognizing, no, no, he is the chosen. He is the elect. God has predetermined something very specific. And that is by grace. It's the election of grace. It's his working. He has to do the work for us. The election of grace. How are you saved? By his working. By the fact that he was elected. He is chosen of God, and when we believe, and that's, again, another thing that there's only one means by which a man can be saved, and that's by faith. These are things that are in the hard wiring of the kingdom of heaven. But by God's election and God's decree, it is in the last Adam, the seed of heaven. It is in Isaac, the child of promise. It is in Jacob or Israel, the one who believed. It is by faith that no man can boast. These are set the concrete is hardened, and that's why we as believers put all our confidence right here. This is what he said. This is what he's spoken, and he is the I am. He cannot change. So therefore, I know that when I believe in the second, and I put my faith in him, then I am surely, in agreement with the word of God, saved. That is where salvation comes from, by faith in the word. The word of God in text, the Bible, yes. The word of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, and the word of God in action on that cross, when he went to work for us, we say, I put all my chips on that. I put all my confidence on that. And that is, according to the hard wiring of heaven, the means of salvation that will never change. By God's election, God's decree, there is only one. There is only one that can save. There is only one that can do this work. And if you miss that one, if you do not put your faith in that one, you are lost. In other words, everything in God's word, everything in God's creation centers around the election of one man. And that becomes very critical in our understanding of Romans 9. And that one is not you or me, just in case you were wondering. It's like, could I be that one? 
There is only one who can crush the serpent's head. There is only one who can shatter the bonds of our inescapable covenant with death. There is only one chosen vessel of salvation, one elect savior, and one deserving of worship, honor, and praise. All other... All others are vessels fit for destruction. Everyone, get this, is going to sound a little shocking at first. Everyone that is not that one that we just mentioned is a vessel fit for destruction. How can I say that so confidently? Because we're all in the first. The only one who is not fit for hell, who is not a vessel of destruction, is the one who lived perfectly without spot or blemish. But the rest of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, every single one of us is a vessel of destruction. Therefore, there's a solution for every single one of us in here. And it's the same. And that is that we need to repent and believe in the one. And that one is the only means by which a man can be saved. It is already determined. I know, I'm just going to break it to you here. Adam cannot save You cannot save yourself. It's already determined. There is no going back on this. God is not in the last day going to go, you know what? You have a good argument there. I guess I really was a little harsh on this point of saying only one means of salvation being my son. And since your argument is so good, okay, I guess you can save yourself. There is no changing on this point. It has already been determined. It has been determined before you were born. It has been determined before these thoughts are going through your head. It's already established. God established it. The flesh of the body, that which, is de- that which is derived, inherited from Adam, cannot do the saving work. Keeping the law and willing, working and doing in this flesh, in this body of death, cannot please God. Cannot access his presence and cannot make us the one. So you may say, I really esteem this one. I want to try and be like that one. But in and of yourself, in your own grit and determination, you cannot be the one. You cannot be the one that isn't the vessel fit for destruction. Every single one of us needs to face the facts that we are a vessel fit for destruction and that there is only one vessel that is fit for honor and his name is Jesus Christ. And then we need to listen to the message. Repent and believe. You see, you are in a position where you have to recognize you are not the one and he is. This has been predetermined. You can argue it until you're blue in the face. However, God has already said it. He has already declared it. The second is the means of salvation. It is already determined. Only the last Adam, Jesus, the second man, Jesus, saves. It is the willing of God, the working of God, the doing of Christ that is the only thing that can please God and that can access the throne room. This working of God is called grace. And it is by grace through faith that we are saved. There is one that is promised, and this promised one is the only one who can and will do it. Faith in the one, the key to salvation. So this is already determined as well. There is only one means of salvation, and it's not by the law. It's not by doing good works. It's not by self-righteousness. It is by faith in the lone means of salvation, or as we like to say around here, in the word of God. God has spoken to us in and through his word, which we know is the Bible, the scriptures, and we believe it. And we say, that is truth. And that scripture reveals the word of God in person, whose name is Jesus Christ. And we believe that that word of God in person perfectly matches the word of God in text, and he is, in fact, that one. 
And then what he did on that cross is sufficient for us. So therefore, it is already determined that faith in that one is the key to salvation. The one and only. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I realize what I'm saying is extremely politically incorrect. Uh, this is truth. Whether any of us feel, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing most of you in here have heard me say politically incorrect things so often you're still lingering, so I'm guessing you're fine. <laughs> but the point being, it is already determined there's only one means of salvation. And you could be in any other religion, any other philosophy, you could be genuine in it, you could be sincere in it. Sincerity doesn't save, Jesus does. If sincerity saved, then it would be something other than the one. But it has been declared beforehand, before your time, before you ever breathed, how salvation came to man. Now, it is our job to deliver that news. It's called the good news because he has come. I mean, he could just dispose of us. We're vessels fit for destruction. That's, that's fitting. Destruction would be fitting. We could wear it and say, hey, it measures perfectly for us. It's fitting. And we are fit for destruction. However, God so loved this world that he gave us the one. That whosoever would believe in him should not perish as a vessel fit for destruction, but should receive life and that eternal. Neither is there salvation in any other. Huh. Well, that sounds similar, doesn't it? For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What about Abraham? He was a good guy. No, doesn't do you any good. You can be a descendant of Abraham. It doesn't save you. And that's actually what Romans 9 is saying. It's not just because you're of Israel that you're saved, that you're the elect. The elect are the ones in the second. Those are the ones that are the elect. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life. Prarizo. But the wrath of God abides on him. If you're in the first, you're still under, under the sentence of death. And it's only those that believe in the Son that have life. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It doesn't say in ten mediators. There is one mediator between God and men. So if you don't go to that mediator, if he doesn't stand on your behalf, uh, you're a goner. Introducing seven key facts about our I am God. So these are facts, and the reason I'm giving them to you is not because I just want to ramble on. I actually am trying to make this message as taut and tight as I can. However, you need some tools to be able to go into Romans 9. See how hard it is just to teach Romans 9? I haven't even gotten to it yet. And yet, if you don't have tools of the Bible to understand how you reason, God doesn't change. When he gets to Romans 9, he doesn't become haywire. And he's like, oh, throw out what you heard about me before. Now I'm going to you know, do a different type of dance. God is the same in every scripture. So and as a result, you need to know who he is and bring him into the text to help you understand what is being said. Number one, God longs for all to be saved. This is somewhat of an uncomfortable statement for those that have been focusing on the small e, elect, because it's, and I, I understand, I'm not going to go into that, I'm not going to try and even commentate on that, I'm just going to give facts to you, because this is a fact in scripture, because it says it, God longs for all to be saved, I'm going to give, this isn't a quote directly out of scripture, it's just sort of the summary of what I'm going to read, I desire them all. 
I exhort, therefore, this is Paul talking, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. It doesn't say for a few. It says for all. To be testified in due time. Now, this message is not on small e elect. It exists, just like small r righteous exists, just like small h holy exists. In other words, we become the holy ones. They're called the sanctified ones, saints. We are the righteousness of God. That's what we are. In other words, we are miniature versions, but we're small, not capital E, small e, elect, but our election is in Christ. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Even so, it is not the will of our Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So what we have is a really clear enunciation of God's heart. The fact that God is so willing and desirous causes a lot of people to get sort of awkward on the point of, well, if he wanted them, why wouldn't he save them then? I mean, how could anyone end up in hell if this is true? And that's the tension that we have. To understand that though God longs for something, he's not going to force someone to a decision is, again, that's where the milky stuff comes out. But this is still true. Long and short, it's still true whether or not you have a full grasp on it or not. This is God's character. This is his nature. Don't throw it out just to try and prove a doctrine. Number two, God gives a season of repentance. This is a fact of who God is. He, we're vessels fit for destruction. He should judge us when we're three. Throw us out. Well, right when we get, you know how people call it the age of accountability? All right, you blew it. What? Say it's six years old, right? And the little kid lies. It's like, oh, the, the proof, proof is in the pudding right there. You're out of here. In other words, why does he even give us a season? Why does he give us an opportunity to repent? Well, it's because it's his nature and his character to do it. And you'll see all throughout Scripture that he does this. God suffers long with us, granting us opportunity to repent. I am not, this is a quote, not a, not a scriptural take, just sort of a summary statement. I am not quick to anger, but will forbear and long suffer that you might repent and believe. God goes through a lot with us so that we would come to a place of repentance and belief. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. That's a common theme in scripture, but it's interesting. God still gave the space for repentance. He didn't just give space. He gave space for something very specific. And the end conclusion was she repented not, and therefore bad things happen. But the space is given. If you study Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament, I mean, they're like, boo, material all over the place. They're terrible, right? And yet God is so long-suffering with that couple. If it was up to us, we would destroy them instantly. Get them out of here. God is long-suffering for decades with those two. Why would he do that? That's who he is. He's always been that way. I mean, we're, we're a good picture of Ahab and Jezebel. In other words, maybe we haven't carried things to country level or nation level, but we've done things in our own heart and our own mind that are equally bad. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? God gives space. He gives goodness is what it's called here. He gives opportunity to repent. Do, does everyone repent? No. 
but he still gives that goodness or that space. Think of Jonah and Nineveh, the principle of a fair trial. Why don't you just destroy Nineveh, God? Instead, he warns them of judgment and gives them time. And what is Jonah upset about? He's going to be merciful. I just know it. See, Jonah knew the nature of God. He didn't agree with it. He wanted judgment on them. And yet God is, beyond what we can describe, merciful. And guess what? Nineveh did end up getting destroyed. The Assyrians did get destroyed later. But God gave them an opportunity in this situation. And that generation was given mercy. God gives space, opportunity, and then... If there is repentance, he is able to shower mercy. If there is a rejection and an unrepentant heart, then comes forth judgment. The father of the prodigal. What this prodigal did, by the way, I think a lot of us forget what this would be like. I mean, this is a guy who lived in the house, who knew the father, and who took of the strength of that house and squandered it. He blew it big time. Okay, so he was one guy who was in the house, who had relationship with the father and blew it. And yet, what does the father do? He still longs for his return. And he's like fogging up the windows, looking out. And when he sees him, his response is shocking. He sprints towards him. He kills the fatted calf, gives the ring on his finger. I mean, what is this guy doing? That's the nature of our God revealed. You see, the nature of our God is revealed in Scripture, and it needs to be included in our understanding of the text of Scripture. Number three, God will not be mocked, but will turn all the enemy means for evil into good. So what does God do with all the Ahabs and Jezebels and uh, Pharaohs out there that seem to have a space and a season of repentance? I mean, Pharaoh, talk about a guy who had a season of repentance, a space for it. The guy had 10 plagues given him. It's like, buddy, okay, are you getting the point here? Talk about a season or a space of goodness from God to say, look, I haven't killed you. I could have taken you out a long time ago, but I'm giving you an opportunity. Instead, when a man chooses to go against God, it's called hardening. And he firms up in a position, and as a result, he is unable to be helped then. And that is why in our season of malleability, we want to go towards God. Because the longer you stay, just like I said, the devil's hardened. He's firmed up. Some of you are like, should I pray for the devil? I mean, that he would repent? He's past that. He's already been judged at the cross. I mean, it's already done. The trial's been held. His head's crushed. You see, there's already something established. You, on the other hand, are still malleable clay. And as a result, God has given you opportunity to repent. God will not be mocked. Whether they refuse me or believe in me, I will demonstrate my power and my glory through them. No matter what, I will get my due. So think about it. In the story of the 10 plagues, you have a a guy, Pharaoh, who is put in position, and you could say even by God, and yet he is given opportunity, ample opportunity to behold the power of Jehovah and to repent, and yet he chooses not to. You know that God still got glory out of that guy? However you want to look at it, we're looking at God. We're not looking at the brilliance of Pharaoh or the power of Pharaoh. He had the most powerful military in the world. None of you really think about that. You just think about what an idiot. In other words, it's clear. God will not be mocked. If you choose to defy God, well, judgment will come. However, in and through even his rebellion, we see God's power. That's how it works. 
Though our God longs for all to be saved, he doesn't force all to be saved, but will endure with great patience and mercy those that continue in implacable belligerence towards him and refuse his great salvation in the season he graciously supplies them. He will not be mocked, but will demonstrate his power in and through even their rebellion. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. That's Joseph talking. Evil was actually done against Joseph. And they meant it for evil, is what he says. Their intent was not, oh, that God would show forth his greatness. However, God meant what the enemy was doing for evil. God's like, hey, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll mean that for good. And that's how God works. That is called sovereignty. God takes all things and turns them. No matter if we are belligerent towards him or humble and soft, his decree is still in place. I save through the second. If you do not have faith in the second, you are judged under condemnation. You are not saved then. But this is still the case. And he will get glory from those that are belligerent and he will get glory from those that are humble. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. What a time to live in this country. And stuff like this is very, very important for us. If there's so many threats and things hanging out around there, and if you were to imagine that the results of this last election were overturned by a populist takeover of our government, and we literally became mob rule, and they established their own king over this country, how would you handle it? Would you recognize that God would use that for his good? So there's part of us that grew up understanding constitutional government and we're like, no, we have the right to bear arms. I'm going to shoot a few people down over that one. However, to recognize that God is going to turn all things, no matter how the election turned out this week, it makes no difference for us as Christians. We say, God, you show us how we use this season for your glory. Whether a righteous man is in office or an unrighteous one, it doesn't make any difference. To us, whether it's Nero or Ronald Reagan, it makes no difference to us as Christians how we live. We live for Jesus Christ, for his glory, full on, no matter who's on the throne. Number four, God has rejected the first as the means of rescue. It's just his way. He doesn't necessarily try and, I mean, have you ever thought about it when he talks about Hagar in the New Testament? And you're like, this poor lady I mean, what did she do? She's likened into a mountain, uh, Mount, Zion, or Mount uh, Sinai. It's like, poor lady, how would you like to be likened to a mountain? Uh, and, you know, the, the woman's going to have serious weight uh, issues in her mind. <laughs> but God has rejected the first as a means of rescue. The first solution does not satisfy God. Hagar was a first solution. Ishmael was a first product. In other words, this is like the law. It is the self-effort. It is not that which saves. It's only the second which saves. I have rejected Adam's effort in the flesh. I will only accept the effort of the Spirit. Welcome to the Bible. That is the message. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. Fact. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Look at what passage we're in. We're in Romans 8. Remember what this whole thing is on, even though I haven't even gotten there yet? Romans 9. 
In other words, we're building a case. Context is everything. The first cannot satisfy. It's only the second, that which is born of the Spirit, that which comes from heaven that pleases God. Number five, God has elected or pre-selected the second, or Jesus, as his chosen means of rescue. Adam cannot do it. The second man will be the one. The first man is of the earth, Paul says, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, which means the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Mm, who, Who are we talking about here? Who is God's elect? His name is Jesus. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. God is speaking unto Rebekah. She has this warring faction in her, in her womb, Esau and Jacob. And it says, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. Listen to this. And the elder, which is the first, shall serve the younger, the second. Decree. It's eternal. It's predetermined. The first shall be subservient. Your flesh will serve your spirit. Your body will no longer control you. Your appetite for sensuality, for food, for sleep, these things will be subservient to the Holy Spirit when he moves in. This is called Christianity. It's also the declaration of the Messiah coming and denouncing the first as a means of salvation, saying, I am the only one who can rule. I am the king of kings. Number six, God resists the proud. Good old-fashioned uh, concept in scripture. God resists pride. Those that reject the second. There's no greater enunciation of pride than rejecting Jesus. Spiritual pride. That's what the Pharisees, the Sadducees did. They had all the truth and they rejected the second. He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. God resists the proud. So number seven is the opposite of that. God gives grace to the humble. This is already established. He will resist the proud. Think of Pharaoh. He will give grace to the humble. Grace is the means by which we are saved. So if you want that work of heaven, if you want the offer of the second man, there needs to be humility. You must enter the kingdom as a little child. You see, you cannot come high and mighty. You must come lowly a.k.a. those that repent and believe in the second. He that believes on the Son has eternal life. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life and he that hath not the Son hath not life. God gives grace unto the humble. Fact. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Uh-oh. Okay, guys, you ready for this? Do we have the tool belts all set now? Are we ready to go through Romans 9? So the simplest approach. It is all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. So uh, calling myself a simplest has gotten me in a lot of trouble uh, over the years when people ask me if I'm a Calvinist. And, or an Armenianist, and I say I'm a simplitist. And that means that everything in the Bible is about Jesus. My five points, because the Calvinists have five points, the Armenians have five points, my, my five points are Jesus, 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 Jesus. And that doesn't go over very well. So I'm actually not trying to 
you know, poke anyone out there. I'm just saying that's the simplest approach. It comes from, it's all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, hey, I could wax eloquent about a lot of things. I'm coming to you knowing nothing but Jesus and him crucified. I'm going to give you the North Star. We all fix our compasses to that, and we'll all find home. A.K.A. capital E, election. In other words, when you understand the capital, everything in Scripture is about capital H, holy Jesus, capital R, righteous Jesus. You need to see Jesus before you understand your role. If you miss your Savior, you're no different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, don't go to Scripture and go after the smalls. Go after the small E, the small H, the small R. You have to go after the capital. And when you see the capital, you know your relationship to it. I need to repent and believe. You look at your Savior and you're like, yeah, I I can't save myself, but he can. And so what do I need to do? Repent, believe, all right? That's what I'm doing then. In other words, the only way you understand your role, which is the small letter, your part. Salvation, for instance, there's a big S salvation and there's small S salvation. I teach this at Ellerslie all the time. Small S salvation is what we work out for the rest of our life after we believe. We are saved when we enter into Christ by faith, but now we need to work out the grace that we've been given. We've been given talents of gold, minas of silver. We need to invest those in our life. And that's how Christianity works. We work out that salvation that we've been given, small s. But you don't understand what small s salvation is unless you know the big S of Jesus Christ. Salvation is in the Son. I mean, what if you miss that? What are we actually doing? So you also need Jesus the I am as the interpretive device. So when you approach Romans 9, you need to have Jesus as your key instrument. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That you would think it's about all these other things, when in actuality, Jesus Christ is what it's all about. The word simplicity means singularity of focus. So what I want to do is I want to take Jesus into Romans 9. The argument of Paul in Romans. So we're going to go through, and we're going to see that there's a context being built here. Romans 3, 4, and 5 is a very fast uh, way of giving you context. The case unfolds to the Jews. Paul is talking to the Jews at this point and onward. All have sinned. In Adam, all have died. All are under the law of sin and death. The law is not God's chosen vehicle of salvation. It is not by works or the efforts of this body of death. It is only by faith in the one that salvation is found. So that's the key argument that Paul is laying out. Romans 6, by faith in Christ, there is access into his work on the cross. So this is, again, it's showing the first and the second. It's saying the first can't save you. This is what he's speaking to the Jews. The first cannot save you. Adam and your self-effort and keeping the law will not do it. Only faith in Christ is going to save you. Faith in the second. So by faith in Christ, there is access into his work on the cross. So in other words, you can't get it done. And they're like, well, what can I do then? You can trust and believe in Jesus who did get it done for you. And so you can, you can enter and access his work on the cross. His death becomes our death. His burial, our burial. His resurrection life, our life. We have triumph in Christ. Romans 7, remember he's speaking to the Jews. He says, by faith in Christ, his bodily death is our bodily death, severing the covenant that we have with sin and death, thus enabling the believing man to enter into covenant with the one. Then Paul enunciates in detail the life in Adam, or the body of death, and then proclaims, who can save me from this body of death? And then with finality, he declares, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
In other words, Paul's saying, do you remember when he's saying, there's things I want to do, but I can't do. There's nothing in this body that's able to perform. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking about the first life in Adam. And he says, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through the one, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his conclusion. Romans 8, this chapter enunciates the power, the position, the confidence, and the love that belongs to the believer that is in Christ. Walking after the Spirit and not in Adam. There is no fear of wrath, for there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no fear of separation and death, for in Christ nothing can separate us from his love. And boom, we arrive at Romans 9. And everyone goes and trips and lands on their face. And a lot of people will literally skip this. And they want to just get to Romans 12 and feel good again. However, this is very, very important. And what is taking place is not going off course from what Paul is talking about. It's answering, practically speaking, understanding a big picture of how God works, everything Paul is talking about in a small way in Romans uh, 3 through 8. Romans 9. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So the Jews, he has such a weight for the Jews. Remember, this whole argument has been to the Jews. The discussion has been to the Jews. And what he's actually exemplifying here is the very heart of God that we've been describing. He longs that not anyone would be lost. And he's willing to even be cut off that they would hear. What's that? That's, that's like Christ. So here he is in Christ exemplifying that very heart that we need to carry into Romans 9. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now remember the tools that we've had here. Back then, you are saved because you're of Abraham. That was the mindset that tripped everyone up. In other words, by your heritage, you are saved. The Gentiles, ah! But the Jews... The Israel, Israel was saved in being in the man of faith because Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, if I'm in Abraham, am I saved? No, Abraham is not the one. Now listen to the argument here. It says, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. But who is that referring to? In Isaac, who's the seed of Abraham? Who is the descendant that the seed is called in, that the seed is elected in, that the seed is chosen in? Who is that seed? That is Jesus. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, Adam, these are not the children of God. So if you're still of Adam, I don't care if you're born of Abraham. You're not of the children of God. It's only those that are the children of Christ that are born in Christ. And these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. 
As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Okay, now I don't know if I'm making this at all easier for you. Some of you are just like, oh, what in the world? Maybe you'll have to listen to this message again in the future. Like, oh, I see what he was saying. However, all of this is saying, based on what I've already told you, it's in Christ. It's in the second that it's going to be fulfilled. And so in both these stories, Ishmael, Isaac, Sarah will have a son. And even Rebekah is told. And in her womb, there were two. And it's the second. The elder will serve the younger. The, the, the younger is going to be the key. And that is the one that brings salvation. Jacob have I loved. The, the second have I loved. But Esau, the first, I hate. I can, a vessel fit for destruction I cannot help. But I have given my life that if they believe, I can save them. The predecision. It is the child of promise that is the seed of Abraham. Those who believe the promise are of the seed. Galatians 3.29 says, If you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So who are truly Abraham's seed that are being talked about here? It's those that are of Christ. Not just those that are Jews. That's not actually who God saves. He saves those that believe in the Messiah. That's always the way it's been. Romans 9 continues. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. So let's talk about the predecision, because that's a doozy right there. He has mercy on the humble and those who repent and believe. He has mercy on those he has mercy. It sounds like he's capricious. Like, I don't feel like having mercy on you, so I'm not. I'm going to judge you. God doesn't work that way. He's the I am. So therefore, the way that he functions is always the same. What is it that he's always the same in? He has mercy on the humble and those who repent and believe. He's already decided that. He's already made it clear. If you're humble, if you repent and believe, guess what? You're going to have my mercy. He has mercy on those he chooses to have mercy to. His choice is already made. This is who he gives mercy to. And he hardens those who are proud and do not believe in him as the one means of salvation. So if someone chooses not to believe and rejects the Son of God, rejects the promise throughout Scripture, well, guess what? What happens to them? They harden. So he will harden those who reject him, who were marked by pride. The predecision, he will get glory out of him that is proud and he that is humble. For those that boast in their own strength, he will still demonstrate his own power is greater. And if they refuse to repent and believe, then the wages of such is hardening. If one responds with contrition, there is always mercy. Romans 9 continues. Thou wilt say then unto me, why does he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to that Say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? No, God, can't God decide what must be done with the clay? He knows best. If this clay is hard and unbending, can't he decide to dispose of it? If this clay is malleable and responsive, can't he decide to make use of it? Can't he decide that he is going to form a vessel of honor on our behalf? And... That's what he has done. He has decided. But his decision is just. It is marked in perfect agreement with his character. He has never violated his principles of mercy. Ever. 
Romans 9, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? No, what if we understood that God will not be mocked and will make his power known no matter if one repents or proves belligerent? God is willing to show his wrath upon the unrepentant, but he is also slow to anger and willing to offer a season for repentance. Either way, a man's soul turns, God will demonstrate his power and glory. So God will show his wrath. He will bring judgment, but he also is a God of mercy. And he will give a season of repentance. He will express his goodness to us all in order that we might repent. But even if we don't, God will get glory out of our unrepentance. Think of Pharaoh. In other words, no matter how we come at this, God is the same. He's not random. He's not capricious. He's the same. We are the ones that are the wet clay. He's firm. We're wet. And we are in the forming stages of our life where we need to choose. We need to go towards God. Romans 9. And that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. No, God is not intimidated by the rebellion of men. In fact, he will leverage man's rebellion and their hostilities even to a greater glory made manifest through his saints, those vessels of mercy who have believed in him. Long and short, he will show his glory and power both through the unrepentant and through the soft-hearted, humble believing. Romans 9, as as continues, "As as as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not my beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. God's long suffering also shows glory in that in this season of patience, hardened Gentiles, that's us, fitted for destruction, have repented and become children of the living God and objects of mercy. Those outside the commonwealth of mercy were invited into the mercy, praise God. Romans 9, Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Note, God's long-suffering also proved that Israel, the one that appeared throughout history to be the object of mercy, was in actuality not what it appeared. For much of Israel proved to be the first man instead of the second. Think about it. Jesus comes to this very nation, and they crucify him. The very ones that were seeming to be the object of mercy, God revealed in and through me. He still got glory in and through that people. He still came from that people. For much of Israel proved to be the first man instead of the second. They proved to put their confidence and faith in their own works and righteousness instead of in the work and the righteousness of the second man. Romans 9, and as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth, that's the Lord of battles, the Lord of armies, had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Who is that seed? Did the Lord of battles leave us a seed? He did. His name is Jesus. And unless he did, we would have been made like Sodom and like Gomorrah. No, we all have been vessels fit for destruction. Even the people of the lineage of Abraham had, not given, had, had, not, had God not given us Jesus, the second man. Romans 9, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness? Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. They sought it after the first, which is why they were rejected according to God's parizo. You cannot get it that way. 
because they sought it not by faith as it were by the works of the law. God has chosen, he's already made it clear, it's only by faith that you can access this. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Note, long and short, the long suffering of God proves the nature of the soul. God is willing to show his wrath, but he is also desirous to show his mercies. But he is after his remnant, those who will believe. Now, I don't know if that helped you. That might have just confused you. I'm not exactly sure. This is an extremely difficult message to give. However, I've given you a lot in that. I've given you a lot of little tools, even though we haven't dug down deep into Romans 9. I gave you a cursory overview, gave you some tools, and said, don't miss the capital E. This is about something bigger than Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Pharaoh. That's not what Romans 9 is about. Those are placeholder understandings in the Old Testament to reveal how God works. God has always worked this way. We can cluck our tongues and say, well, he seems so random. He seems to show mercy over here, and he hardens this person over here. No, no. God is a God of mercy who desires all men to be saved. That's why we have to take in the entire counsel of heaven into this exact scripture and say, no, no, God doesn't change in Romans 9. He is who he is. He will never change who he is. Who can open the book? We have a book in the book of Revelations that cannot be opened. And you can include Romans 9 in it. There is only one who can open the book, who can open the mysteries of the old covenant and, and reveal to us truth. There's only one who can open the book. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I mean, we're very shortchanged in finding the one who can do this. There is no man, no one can do this. No one can unlock this great mystery. No one can open up the book. The one and only. I don't know if you've been introduced to him formally yet, but uh, let me be the first if you haven't. There is only one that is capital P perfect, capital R righteous, capital H holy, capital E elect, capital C called, capital J just, capital P pleasing, capital W worthy, capital E exalted, capital G glorified, capital S a son, capital A able to open and read the book, break its seals and unlock its mysteries. You see, we are sons and daughters. How? By adoption in Christ Jesus. You see, he is the son. He is the capital. And so as a result, instead of tripping over the small letter debates, we need to make sure we emphasize the capital E, the elect. He is God's chosen. He is. He is God's elect. He is. There is no other means by which a man can be saved. That is where we start. The small e issues will find their way if we make sure they live in the shadow of the big E. The small e are still reasonable discussions. They have their place in negotiating turns as a Christian to understand this. However, no matter how we look at it, we stand in awe and say, I have no idea how God did this, but I was a vessel fit for destruction. 
And yet somehow God awakened me to see his glory, his beauty, and his ability to break the seals. And however it happened, I have humbled myself and turned and believed. And by faith, I have entered into Christ Jesus, the elect one. And now I'm a little elect guy. I'm a little holy guy. I'm a little righteous guy. I'm not the righteous one. Believe it or not, I can't save any of you. But I can show you the one who can. And the scriptures are all pointing to him. And Romans 9 is not talking about us. It's talking about him. Our position in all of this falls in him. The whole context is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, all the way up to Romans 8, and then we end up in Romans 9. And Paul's first line is even saying, hey guys, I'm going to give you something that I'm thinking, in Christ. In other words, his entire posture, disposition, mentality is, hey guys, if this is true, let's understand this grand schematic that God has laid out throughout the ages, that he has elected the second to be the Savior. He has always made it that way. His name is Jesus. Revelation 5, and this is how we'll finish. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Every mystery, including the mystery of Romans 9, every mystery you'll ever face in Scripture is loosed by a singular man. His name is Jesus Christ. You want to properly handle Scripture, you must make sure he is the key that you stick into the lock of the verse, into the lock of that chapter or that paragraph. You need to recognize that he is what it's about. And if you try and translate or interpret any scripture outside of Jesus, you end up doing harm to the very one that it is all about. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were brilliant men, the teachers of the law. They had so much knowledge and they crucified the Son of God. May we not do the same and lose sight of what truly matters. In all the heavenlies, there is one that we bend our knee before and declare him Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.